0: For those of you who have uh, just joined us and maybe have been away for a little while uh, and missed out on the last couple of Sundays, uh, we are in the heart of Lent and in the heart of our sermon series entitled Crossroads. You ask yourself the question, what is a crossroads? Well, there you go. That's what a crossroads is. It's a place or a point at which a crucial decision must be made that will have far-reaching consequences. But the question, again, is why crossroads for a Lent sermon series? Well, it's probably what I would consider the best contemporary word to describe the outcome of Jesus' decision to start his final journey to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the very mission he was sent to accomplish. But again, crossroads. What led to this crossroads type decision? Well, it really began with a trip that Jesus did way up north, probably the most northern tip of Israel, in a little area called Caesarea Philippi. Now, of all places in Israel, for something remarkable to happen, it would be this place. Nevertheless, it is precisely at this place geographically and this point in Jesus' life and ministry that something remarkable happens to Peter. Peter has a revelation as he's standing around with the disciples looking at Jesus and and answering questions about Jesus' identity. He gets a revelation from from God the Father, no less, And he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And you would think with such a declaration that it's all systems go. It's giddy up time. Get on your horses and corral the troops and we are going to go into Jerusalem and make this proclamation and and rally the crowds, and rally the people, and rally the priests, and just essentially rally everybody who really understood the implications of what the word Messiah meant. That right here and at this point, the one that the Jewish nation had been waiting for for centuries had come to fulfill all the promises God had made through the Old Testament, through the uh, prophets to his people that he would one day send a deliverer, a king-type-like warrior not too far removed from King David who would literally come and ransom and rescue Israel from her misery her oppression from her enemies and restore righteousness. It would be a time of such incredible celebration as the nation once again would resurface to be its own nation. Peter receives this revelation of who Jesus is. And everybody in the group understands the implications of what Jesus said. You would think at that point... That's it. The day has come. The the plan has been unfolded. Let's go and make this happen. And what you end up having is Jesus making a series of statements after that incredible revelation given to Peter that in every essence contradict in every sense of the word, contradict what Peter said and what the Jews had envisioned their Messiah would be. Jesus makes this decision to essentially say, Guys, I know what you have just heard, and you are right. I am the son of the living God. I am the Messiah. But this is what's going to happen now. And after he kind of shared his heart about going to Jerusalem and being rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and eventually being put to death and rising from the dead three days later, it just didn't compute. It sent a shockwave to and through his closest followers who were completely at loss for words to understand. It started a chain reaction of events that would ultimately result in his horrific death. It put his followers, his disciples, in a place of having to make radical decisions about what it would mean to follow him. It would redefine their value system of what life, fairness, and greatness actually was. Ultimately, Jesus' decision to say what he said after Peter's revelation would set into motion a spiritual revolution that has literally swept through our world for the past 2,000 years. A revolution which you and I are both recipients of and participants in. And all the messages that we have heard so far have been based out of the 16th chapter of Matthew, where in essence it becomes the the dividing line, the watershed moment, the crossroads moment in Jesus' ministry, where he is going to start leaving this most northern part of Israel and make his way all the way down to Jerusalem, where a series of events in the space of one week will be set into motion that will literally change the face of the world forever. We are here because of that decision, because of those events. Now, the last couple of messages have all focused on Matthew 16, kind of unpacking what Jesus said kind of said after the fact that, well, I'm the Messiah, yes, but this is the way it's going to look like when I go and do what I have been called to do. The truth is, is that following Matthew 16, right up to Palm Sunday, there are very, very few things that actually transpire in Jesus' ministry. It's not to imply that anything that he did say or do wasn't important, but there was so little recorded. The only event that you and I would probably raise our eyebrows to would be the transfiguration, which happened, well, biblically, it happens the next chapter after Matthew 16, but chronologically, it's the next big thing to happen before Palm Sunday. But even In that glorious event, Luke says that Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah about his soon-to-happen passion. In other words, the conversation wasn't like a high-five Jesus and hey, isn't it wonderful that people are finally starting to get who you are. It was none of that. It was a talk about Christ's impending death. It was around the corner. So that brings us today to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, you have probably the the last discipleship lesson that Jesus is going to take his followers through before he goes to Jerusalem. And it's a critical one because really, it's a way of Jesus almost putting a seal on everything that He has taught in Matthew 16. So I'm going to read the text to you today. I'm reading it from the New Living Translation. And then we'll dive into this. Matthew 20, verses 17 down to 28, reads as swells As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to them. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die, then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask for a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, They were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know what the rulers in this world lord it over their people. And the officials flaunt their authority over those under him, them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a mouthful. So we start with the very first one. First point, the reminder. We've already read it, that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to suffer Under the religious rulers of his day, and then by the Romans, be put to death, and then be raised from the dead. Now, I don't know if this sounds familiar to you. Pastor Shannon unpacked this a little while ago. But here's the point that I think is critical for us to pick up today that this is the third time in the space of literally four chapters. That Jesus is reminding his closest followers of his impending suffering and death. The first time it sent a shockwave through Peter. And Peter got up and essentially pulled Jesus aside and said, hey, have you lost it? This is never going to happen to you. And we all know how that story went. Jesus rebukes Peter, sets him straight, and then outlines the conditions of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Amen. The second time, when you kind of piece together Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is what happens. It says that the disciples were grieved, that they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. Luke adds this interesting little detail. It says that they were it was concealed from them so they, they couldn't understand. Almost as if, almost as if, God was maybe just clouding their minds so they couldn't get it. We'll leave that one alone because that's, a, that's an interesting thing to work through. Nevertheless, by the time you get to this point in Matthew's gospel, this is the third time that he announces or makes this prediction of what he's, what's going to happen to him. Mark adds this interesting little detail that Jesus was actually walking ahead of the disciples and you get the impression that they were amazed at his pace. But at the same time, they were terrified. They were afraid. This time, Jesus himself adds an interesting detail. In the previous two reminders... He outlined the fact that it would be his own people, his own, the, the, the leaders of Israel would be the ones that would put him to death. But now, he goes probably even further and a lot more clear by saying, no, in fact, they're going to hand me over to the Romans and the Romans are going to do their dirty work. Again, we, we miss these little nuances, but you, you have to understand The disciples are looking at the one who who has essentially allowed himself to be declared the Son of God, the Messiah. The one who would, by virtue of who he is and what he would do, would eliminate the Romans. And essentially Jesus is saying, without saying it, I know you guys are all expecting me to go to Jerusalem and set them free from Roman oppression, guess what? It's not going to happen. They're going to kill me. So no wonder in their hearts and minds this was a complete disconnect. And I know that it's difficult for us to capture the full implications of Jesus, the revelation of who Jesus is, as Messiah and the Son of God, and the statements that he makes after that. And I've wrestled at length to try to find an adequate illustration. The only thing I could come up with is, could you imagine a group of doctors, physicians, um, medical researchers, um, kind of all expert in their fields of surgery and, and, and drug um, investigation and research, and they all come together, and they're all under one person, and finally at one definitive point, he looks at them and he says, guess what? I have the cure for cancer. And everybody's like, Whoa! And, and they understand the implications. They understand that by making such a declaration, that everything's going to change. The medical establishment's going to have to change. The, the pharmaceutical companies are going to have... Everything's going to change. The funeral homes... It's going to affect them. Because if we've got a cure for cancer, could you imagine what longevity on earth would look like? What mortality would look like here on earth? Now for some of us, we're like, oh well, yeah, well whatever. But for those of us who have been touched by cancer and have relatives who have been affected by cancer, that would be a dream come true. A cure for cancer. And so everybody in their little group are saying, "Great, you know, we're 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 let's say they're meeting Ontario someplace, you know, someplace north, okay? We'll say Orangeville or or maybe uh, I don't know Huntsville, and I say, okay, we're going to go to Toronto. We're going to call the World Health Organization together. We're going to call all the, the uh, CEOs of, of St. Michael's and and and, and Trinity, and I'm going to bring all the doctors together. And we're going to make this great announcement." And, and the doctor, or let's say the, the guy who, who's found the cure for cancer, says, well, you know, the truth is, is when we get to Toronto, the drug companies and the medical establishment are going to do everything they can to kill me. Because they don't want this. This is going to upset far too many apple carts. And so, yeah, I have this solution, but it's going to die with me. You know, I, I mean, even that doesn't do it, do it justice. But the point is, is that Jesus represented in his person, not only in his person, but by his deeds, by healing sick people, by raising people from the dead, by driving out demons, that the rule, the king, kingdom of God, had, had come in his person. And it was starting to come through him. And it was going to be established And that had implications for the future of the Jewish nation. And now he's saying, well, ultimately it's all going to be cut short. Anyhow, I'll leave that there with you. You can join the dots. From the revelation of who Jesus is to his arrival in Jerusalem, you are the Christ to the shouts of Hosanna, In that space of time, Jesus makes three solemn, graphic predictions, prophecies of what's going to happen to him. I ask myself the question, why? Why does he do that? Were his disciples dense? Were they in denial? Or they just didn't want to hear about it? Moms, why do you repeat yourselves so many times to your children? Don't bless them. Yeah, well, who knows, right? Who knows? He is trying to drive a very important point home. Secondly, the request. Well, we don't know exactly how much time transpired between Jesus making this third pronouncement and this little incident. The implications are, there wasn't really a lot of time in between. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew and Mark parallel each other right to this point. Matthew inserts a story about those individuals that the, the, the vineyard owner uh, called into at various times in the day to go into the harvest and work and um, it actually has something to do with this story, but I'll allude to that later. But the point is, is that essentially there's very little time. So Jesus makes a statement, and John and James' mother come up to Jesus. Mrs. Zebedee. Now, for all intents and purposes, if people have interpreted the Scriptures correctly, she is Jesus' mother. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. She is Jesus' mother's Mary's sister. Boy, that was a, that was a, that was a bad slip. No, the coelagent got that one wrong. Making her Jesus' aunt. She was there at the empty tomb. She was there at the cross. She was there following Jesus and his entourage on the way to Jerusalem. She really represented one of those women who would not be left behind in following the Messiah. Why is she representing her two boys? Well, it's not uncommon for a mother to seek acknowledgement or favor from a king on behalf of her children. You see this in, in the book of Kings. Truth is, I get the impression that maybe the sons put her up to it. Now, interestingly enough, Mark excludes the fact that the mother went first to ask Jesus. He just kind of gets right to the point. James and John went to Jesus and said, we want to sit at your right hand and left hand. Now, interestingly enough, this woman, and whether she wanted to, whether she had affinity for her children, whether she thought, you know what, I am your aunt after all. Maybe I can just kind of get in there. and She follows the protocol of what would be appropriate for addressing a king in those days. She kneels. She makes her request, and Jesus asks her, what do you want? And, of course, we've already read it. I want my sons to sit on your left hand and right hand side when you enter your kingdom. James and John. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. Thunder is the translation of the Greek word Bronte, like Bronte wrote. It literally means thunder or cloudy skies thundering. Not only that, Bronte was the name of a cyclops in Greek mythology. Interestingly enough, we all know that Cyclops only had one eye. Very tunnel vision. They only saw one thing. Ironically, that after this episode, Jesus will heal two blind men. Anyhow, We have a lot of fun with that. But uh, James and John, at one point when Jesus was ministering, and sense and receive some rejection from the Samaritans, James and John, in their seeker-friendly approach to Jesus' ministry, said, Lord, should we call down fire on these people? No wonder he called them the sons of thunder. I have nicknamed them the brothers Grim. The brothers, and you can see them. I, I can almost picture them in their youthful arrogance and pomp. I mean, they're no longer fishermen now. They've been traveling with Jesus. They're his associates. They're part of the inner circle with three, or the inner circle of three, and um, they got some panache. And I, I can almost see. You know, I, I was, I was envisioning this. So I just, we'll have a little bit of fun here. You know, when they, then they first meet Matthew, right? And Matthew says, oh, I remember you guys. You're the, you're the sons of Zebed. That is Zebedee, Esquire. Yeah, Esquire, all right. Brothers Grimm. But they wanted positions of authority. Now, uh, let me just go back a little bit here. The right hand was usually understood as a place of position, honor, and significance in Old Testament history, Old Testament life. Why were they making such an audacious and arrogant ask? Well, we know that two chapters before Jesus already talked about the issue of greatness. In other words, they came to him and said, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he brings a little child and he says, listen, greatness is defined by humility and childlikeness childlike faith. The previous chapter, Jesus actually tells them that the 12 of you will sit on the 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel when I am seated on my glorious throne. But by the way, the first will be last and the last will be first. All of this in reply to Peter's "wham wham wham" boo-hoo moment about, hey, we've given up everything to follow you. What's in it for us? James and John viewed themselves as loyal followers of Jesus. But ironically, their, their ambition, their sense of, we've got something coming to us because we've given everything up for you, blinded them. At this point. Reality check. Jesus essentially says. um, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh yes they replied. We are able. I almost see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye. Maybe a tear of sadness to be quite honest with you. You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. The Father has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. Reality check. I don't know what was a greater shock to Jesus that they would actually ask that after the fact that He told them you will be seated on on one of the twelve thrones to, to judge Israel, or the fact that after what he had just told them about he, what he was going to suffer, that they would right away start thinking about position and, and status and entitlement. Nevertheless, he says, um, hmm, okay. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? The Old Testament imagery of the cup kind of graduated from one of of symbolic of the wrath and punishment of God on sinful nations, to blessing, and you see that in the book of Psalms. But here Jesus redefines the cup. He's essentially saying the cup is the cup of suffering that comes as a result of obeying God. And to rephrase it, he's saying... Are you willing to embrace suffering that will come as a result of obeying my Father? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yes, we can. Sounds like a political mantra I heard not too long ago. Yes, we can. Spoken without any hesitation, any clarification or understanding of the implications of making such a statement. I think, in fairness to these three guys, it was spoken in ignorance and not in sincerity. I mean, after all, they had followed Jesus, they had been loyal to him up to this point. They stuck with him when everybody else deserted. But still, it's just typical of human nature. I've climbed this far. How much further can I go? And at whose expense? Jesus reminds him that this seating arrangement, this place of prominence, this place of authority and honor, is not his to give. It's in keeping with the fact that all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to, God the Father, is referred to as the one who promotes or puts down. As a matter of fact, in this amazing portion of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, we call the great kenosis, after Paul talks about what Jesus did to empty himself and to make himself a servant and a slave and to obey unto the point of death, it says that God highly exalted him. It's only God's prerogative to exalt and to put down. Resentment. now, I love this, right? Because you can see the ten guys kind of closing in on James and John as they're making their petition and their request for glory. And (laughs) I don't see them going, "Are are they saying what I think they're saying? Yeah, they want the top seats. They want to be the big kahunas. They want to be on either side of Jesus. Well, they were ticked off. It's almost as if, hey, you guys were already given privilege and status. It's not enough. You want even more? And I I find it ironic that, you know, they're, they're kind of buddies with Peter. And the three of them kind of went around everywhere Jesus went. I wonder what that first little conversation with Peter was like after the fact. Hi, Peter. He's going, yeah, guys, James, John, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, you wanted those places of honor and position, right? Okay, well, yeah, you'll get position and honor all right. I wonder if Jesus ever did a head count in the morning when he woke up with his disciples, you know, Bartholomew, Philip, Nathaniel, and went down the line and was like, where's, where's James and John? Who? James and John, they were here yesterday. Oh, there was a traveling circus on its way to Babylon. They joined up. But you can understand, and I think we've all been there, where other individuals... Um, you know, it's this funny thing about pecking orders, and oh, I can't even believe that word came out of my mouth, but, you know, group situations where everybody kind of knows their role and their position and their place. We're really comfortable with that until somebody starts excelling. And it's amazing what emerges out of us when that happens. You see it in the world all the time. Anyhow, I digress. But number five, the radical reversal. Jesus, picking up on the fact that the ten disciples were about to lynch James and John, or at least beat them senseless or, I don't know, throw them off a cliff, something, I mean, hey, 12 is good, but 10 is not bad either. Jesus calls them together and says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Last week, Pastor Shannon alluded to and talked about the incredible reversal of the values of the kingdom of God when compared to the values of this world. It's not that they're different. They're a complete reversal. It's a complete upside down change. Change. Jesus says worldly power, worldly authority structures thrive this way. Somebody has to be in charge and get other people to serve them. That authority is misused for the sake and betterment of the one who's in authority. Now, Jesus is not condemning authority or power or position, he's condemning how it's used. And we've all seen examples of that in our world where individuals uh, we'll probably have fun if we talk about American politics of individuals who the moment they aspire or have received a certain place of position and power they lose themselves. And strange things happen. Jesus says whoever wants to become great among you Must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. There are no two more derogatory terms in the Greek language that describe the lowest of status that individuals can be found in the status of a servant and the status of a slave. Now, a person of service can render service to help others and maybe even get paid for it. But a slave, a slave is owned as a possession. They're not free to do as they wish. They're bound to obey their master. One, one person by the name of Robinson says, "...a slave's whole life is lived in service for which they can claim neither credit nor reward." And Jesus says, well, essentially, what Jesus says is nothing short of revolutionary, but at the same time, I think to our modern sensibilities, revolting. He said, if you want to aspire to something in the kingdom, if you want to be known, if you want to have something indicative of your status, your position, If you want to be viewed and recognized and have a reputation as being something, then let it be this. Let it be a servant. Let it be a slave. As a complete reversal of the way of the world, it's revolting. Because none of us like being pushed around. None of us like being bullied. Bottom line is is none of us like being told what to do. None of us like being under abusive authority. I mean, that's a no-brainer. We all understand that. But there is something broken in our nature that we've inherited from the fall. this, This autonomy on steroids... That constantly has to be tamed by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, by loving community and accountability and submission because it's like a ferocious cancer. It will consume us autonomy, independence, the right to myself, the me, myself, and I, the the part of us that says, no, you don't get to tell me what to do. No, I will do my own thing. No, I don't have to listen to you. It's devious. It's, It's devilish. And yet we wrestle with it every day. It's like it won't let us be. It won't give us a moment of rest. Unless we follow Jesus' prescription for that diabolical remnant and residual part of our Adam or Adamic nature. And that is to say, Lord, I am your servant. Jesus goes on by saying, hey, if you want proof, now he's saying this without actually coming out and saying it, but if you want proof that this works, if you want tangible evidence that there is a way of living that could actually free you from the tyranny of always having to be first, of always having to have your own way, of always having to have live under the crushing burden of getting what you want. It's servanthood. And he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear friends. This beautiful word ransom. Is only found here. And in Mark 10. Mark's version of the very same story. Its relative words. Are found in about maybe five or six places. In the New Testament. They're usually translated by the word redeem. Or redemption. But it has. It has. In its origin. This sense of the price. The That is paid to have released a prisoner of war. Now, the the meaning grew and got expanded and altered by the time it gets to Paul's writings. But Jesus is essentially saying here I, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the One, I didn't come. To push myself forward. To seek position and status. To climb to the top of the ladder. And, and, and just grind people under me. And have the satisfaction of telling people what to do. And how to do it. And when to do it. And how high to jump. You, you, you know all the colloquialisms. You understand what I'm trying to get. The point is he's saying. I haven't come to do that. I have come. To serve, but serving by giving. And giving my life away to release prisoners of war, all of you who are captive to sin. We've come full circle. Matthew 16 begins with a revelation of who Jesus is, his identity. But in this little verse, we end up with Jesus declaring his purpose. Identity, who I am, his purpose, what I have come to do. And in that space between Matthew 16 to Matthew 20, Jesus finally unveils it. It's like, here's the great plan. Here's the deal. Here's the Here's the big vision. I have come to be a servant to lay my life down and give it away that I may release people from the tyranny of sin. That's my plan. You could understand why as he's traveling with his disciples, he had to repeat this over and over again. It didn't compute. It wouldn't connect because it was just simply so foreign to their understanding. There's just nothing about what he said would have resonated with him. So what does this mean for us today? First of all, collision. The way of the world and the way of the kingdom. Now, we all know that if we were to take Jesus at His word in what we believe He's implying in these scriptures, not only today, but from Matthew 16, there's part of us that says, you don't understand. I mean, those, that's nice that the Bible says this, but this is not the way it works in the real world. You don't put, you you don't get ahead by allowing yourself to become last. You don't make it to the top and advance your agenda and dream your dreams by being a slave to those around you. It's not the way the real world works, God. You don't put others first. Because they're not going to put you first. You, you got to walk on them. Crawl on them. Get them out of the way. Make elbow room. Push them out. And Jesus says the way of the kingdom is not this way. So much has been said about that in the last couple of weeks. I don't need to say anymore. But you understand. That here is just one more example. That the, the way of the kingdom of God. The way God chooses to rule and expresses good, loving, just leadership in our lives is not the way the world does it. Interestingly enough, in First John 2.15-17, John says, The lusts of the flesh, the lusts, uh, the, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life belong to the world, and the world is passing away but he who does the will of God will last forever. You see, in the now and the the already but not yet, Jesus is asking us to live by the values of the kingdom. You know why? Because that's what we're heading to. That's where we're going. We are eventually going to be part of, here on earth, a kingdom where that is the way of life. That's the way it is done, where people don't walk over each other. We're, we're the first art. You understand what I'm trying to say. We start living out the kingdom of God, its values and behaviors. Now we make visible these values and behaviors right now. Not easy. But that's what he's called us to do. And that is what makes us distinct from the world. Enough said. Conflicted. Conflicted ambitions, aspirations, and agendas. The folk, uh, folks, the truth of it is that you and I will always wrestle with a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. Sometimes we just can't help ourselves. It just comes to us Naturally. Right? Default, it's, it's just the way we're wired. You know, this whole un- understanding of ROI, return on investment, what's in it for me? What will I get out of it? This self-centered question of, if I do this, what, what am I going to get back from this? How will I look? How will I be perceived? What will others think? Will it be enough payback to make it worth my time and effort? boy these are hard things to wrestle with in our heart but you know what folks as as rough as that is ironically in our present generation and culture this what's in it for me attitude has given birth to a new child a new kid in town called entitlement which assumes that it has the right to something because why not It has a right to something by virtue of one's self-perception of one's own goodness, greatness, or godliness. One is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. How many times have we encountered it with our children? Or we've seen it and it's like, well, I want this. Well, why? Well, because. Well, because why? Well, why not? It's a new question. I, I still haven't figured that one out. But entitlement just doesn't say what's in it for me. It says, it says well, listen, I, I deserve it. You're going to give it to me anyhow. For such an individual actually believes that way, grace and gratitude has all but left their heart. It's like grace and gratitude are hanging on for dear life. You know, ah, uh, never no, I'll leave it be. The motives behind. Our agendas, our aspirations, our ambitions are very sneaky. They constantly need to be brought to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. We can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Doesn't make it right. The end never justifies the means. Could you imagine, and as it's said over and over again in John's gospel, that Jesus' only motive was to please his Father. His obedience was nothing more than to do his Father's will. And there's a part of me that says, Jesus, that's not enough. I cringe to say it, but there's times where my heart says, it's not enough. It's, I'm doing this, but to do it to your glory, God, for your pleasure alone? Lord, I confess that it's not enough. And I have to bring that to God on a day-to-day basis to have it crucified, to realize that I'm deserving of nothing. That I am not entitled to rewards or privilege or status or reputation or am all of this stuff. I don't have a right to any of it. My life was given back to me. And I am now free to use it for him. What a privilege and what an honor. But when you lose sight of that, as I said, gratitude and grace start evaporating out of our hearts. Clarification reality check. Jesus will always clarify reality for us. In an age where we are constantly told, you can do whatever you can. If you dream it, if you believe it, go for it. No one has the right to stop you. It is refreshingly painful at times, but refreshingly appropriate to hear someone in love and grace and say, you know what? You're not cut out for this. You're not wired for this. How many of us watched episodes of American Idol to hear someone making a complete fool of themselves by singing completely off-key, forgetting the words, to have Mr. Cowell remind them that whoever told you you can sing must be shot. And then they walk off stage cussing and saying, he's got no right to say that to me. My mother said I can sing. (laughs) All Right? Yeah. Jesus will always clarify reality for us. And I'm glad that he'll always be the one who will graciously say, hey, listen. I've not called you to this. I haven't asked you to do this. You're not suited for this. I've spent enough time with individuals crushed by the disappointments of the reality of lives because of the amount of people told them that they should be doing this or that they're, you know, yes, you can go for that and no, don't let anybody tell you that you can't. And when they go for it and they get crushed, they get rejected, and, and in this sense that they ultimately face what is inevitable for them. And they come back, and they go like, why didn't this, this was supposed to happen, everybody told me. And it's like, wow. Anyhow. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He understands our limitations, our boundaries. He knows what he's created us to be, what he's created us to do. And the greatest fulfillment of any sense of ambition, any sense of aspiration, is simply to be what you have been created by God to be. Correction. Status, success, and significance. We are living in the age of the celebrity. Media, multimedia, social media, has made it possible for so many people to get their face, their name, their, their, their angle, their bent, their whatever out there and say, hey, look at me. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I can do. If, if I could even use the word, if anybody had celebrity status, it was Jesus. And yet he traded it to be a servant. We have all had moments where we were seeking status, where we secretly believed in our hearts, if I have this position, I will be respected. We have strove for success. If I have success, I'll have recognition. Well, we've sought significance. If I have significance, I will be sought out for my reputation. Man, when you get entangled with that and you pursue it and you go after it, it's just amazing what you become in the process. None of these things mattered to Jesus. His security was in his identity and his mission. Christ-like servanthood and giving. And with this, I close. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, please. I remember at our former church, or my former church, um, we were in meetings wrestling through what it meant to be a missional church, and, you know, what, what did it really mean to be a church that honored the Great Commission, and I remember as we were talking, the statement was made, you can serve without being missional, but you cannot be missional without serving, Right? You can go and do things for others, serving them, without any intent on seeing this through the eyes of God's mission here on earth. But there is no way that you can be a part of God's mission here on earth without seeing the avenue of service to others. I want to take that a step further today. Is that we can give without ever serving. But we cannot serve without giving. And the challenge for us, and the example that Jesus sets down for us, is that in serving, you must give. But the beauty of it all is that as we serve, as we give of our time, our energy, our life, In whatever capacity, whatever respect, God takes those things and transforms them for his purposes. And that there is a deep sense of satisfaction when we get servanthood right. When we view it as a way of giving, not as a way of trying to get something in return. And sometimes we can do one well. Sometimes we fall back into the rut of doing the other. We serve and give in order to get back. And get back can be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But in those moments when we get it right, and the Spirit of Jesus has complete, unhindered access to our heart, mind, and soul, and we are serving simply to give, And others are blessed and changed and transformed and encouraged by our gift. Something begins to change within our heart. We become more like Jesus. And we become more satisfied in doing the will of God than trying to advance our agendas, our ambitions, our dreams, our goals, our aspirations. Easy? Absolutely not. But that's how we are formed. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we, I think we'd be honest with you today that we would be shocked at the fact of Taking unto ourselves once and for all the title of a slave. Being your slave does not mean being a non person, a nothing, um, somebody completely indispensable and disposable. To embrace the calling as a slave, as a servant, is to aspire to be like Jesus. It's to aspire to believe and to have faith in trusting that if we simply give out of servanthood and do what you ask us to do for whoever it may be, that as they're transformed, We're changed. I know, God, that we all want to be changed first. We all want to be transformed. We all want to have a heart just overflowing with with, uh, the equivalent of Niagara Falls love just pulsing out of us so that we can serve others. But I'm believing you're asking us every day to simply step out, And to make that crossroads decision to not serve to see what we can get out of it, but to serve to give to others and to see what they will get out of it, to see what you will do through our our acts of obedience. Lord, none of this is easy, and none of us are pretending that it's easy. We are conflicted people. We are people who are self contradicting. We want to be celebrities. We want to be servants. We want to submit our agendas to you, but we have ambitions. We have aspirations. We don't want to be last. And even if we don't want to be first, God, sometimes just being in the middle is good, it's not too bad. God forbid that we would ever be last. Lord only you know what has affected us and infected us as your people in this day and age that we are living in in this day and age of YouTube and and me and myself and I and entitlement and an American idol and the voice and and all these reminders that we have a right to champion our cause and be at the front of the line. God, we can't help but admit that we have been stained by that in one way or another, and only you can cleanse it. So we offer ourselves anew to you today, God, and we invite you just to wash us clean and to help our hearts be realigned to you and to kingdom values, and to the example of your Son, Jesus, whose life is being formed in us, as even as we speak in here, that we would be servants after your heart, and that we wouldn't worry about what's coming to us, but we would leave that in your hands, knowing, knowing that they who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted in due time, So, Father, receive us this day. Receive our hearts and our lives. And and begin once again this transformation of self to servant. Of first to last. Of celebrity to servanthood. This morning we're going to invite you to come forward For those of you who are seeking prayer, maybe some of you today have have long struggled. Maybe you have absented yourself from obeying God for no other reason than your inner conflict. Maybe you have gifts and abilities and things that would make such a difference in the kingdom of God, but somehow you believe that, well, if I do that, I might get noticed, and what will people think, and and what are they going to say about me if I, if I say, I, you know what, Lord, I will step up and do this. The point is, is who cares what people think? What does your Heavenly Father think if you don't step up? That's the only opinion that matters here today.